Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Shannon Deaton and Jason Creekmore. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we are discussing the Russian Revolution, an event that reshaped Russia, its citizens, and foreign affairs around the world. Across the table from me, I have avid historian and champion of democracy, Jason Creekmore. How are you, man? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Let freedom ring. You ready to represent the people that's today? A, that's exactly right. <laughs> for the people, by yeah. the people. That, that, that should be our motto here on Slapdash. We're for the people, right? Maybe that should be like we should include that like on our uh, the actual podcast logo. I think so. That'd be I think cool. we could work that in. <laughs> that could be kind of neat. So, Jason, we're, we're talking about the Russian Revolution today, and th- this is an interesting topic. Yeah, those folks revolted. They sure did. <laughs> Several times. They did. Yeah. It, it's been a while since we've done a straight history episode like this. Remember, we did the Cold War. That was like our third episode, maybe. Yeah, yeah. so it, it has been quite a while. Yeah. Probably... What, six months or so? Something, six something months. like that? Yeah. That that episode was actually one of our most downloaded episodes. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to <laughs> Go figure. wrap back around here. So moving from the Cold War to the Russian Revolution. So we'll begin with a brief introduction of the Russian Revolution, how it started, how it ended, and Alexander Romanov II. But first of all, before the revolution, Russia was ruled by a powerful monarch called the Tsar. And you'll hear this term referenced throughout this podcast. The Tsar was an emperor who had total power in Russia. He commanded the army, owned much of the land, and even controlled the church. So such a very all-powerful person. The Romanov family was the last imperial dynasty to rule Russia. They first came to power in 1613, and over the next three centuries, 18 Romanovs took the Russian throne, including such names as Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Alexander I, II, and III, and Nicholas I and II. During the Russian Revolution of 1917, Bolshevik revolutionaries toppled the monarchy, ending the Romanov dynasty. But how did Russia get to the point of revolution? It all begins with Alexander Romanov II. Alexander Romanov II was born on April 29, 1818, and lived until his assassination on March 13, 1881. He was the Tsar of Russia for 26 years, from 1855 to 1881. In addition to being the Tsar of Russia, Alexander II was also the King of Poland and the Grand Duke of Finland. Just sort of a bonus. Yeah, right. he just gets these bonus titles. Right. Yeah, the Tsar is not just enough. Right. I want to be the Duke of something. Is there a Duke of McCreary County or Whitley County? Maybe at least, maybe just my street that I live on. Okay. Maybe I, I may be the Duke of Williamsburg you Street. You have some nobility there? Uh, no, not, no, not really. <laughs> it's, time it, time it, for revolution. It, it's sort of self-proclaimed. <laughs> I, I may just go home and put a sign up in the yard and just challenge, challenge someone on that. See if anybody will, you know, kind of rise up and try to overthrow me. Sounds good. Well, there was growing unrest in Russia during this time that Alexander Romanov II was in power, due in part to the mistreating of peasants and the great disparity of wealth and ownership between the ruling class and yeah. the lower class. That's, that, that's a big common theme. That's how these things get started, yep. usually. People feel as if they're treated unfairly, and typically they are. Inevitably, these feelings lead to revolution. There was a terrorist organization around this time known as the People's Will. You ever heard of this, Jason? Uh, I have, just because, you know, uh, in, in preparing for this episode. But that, that name is kind of, I don't know, that sort of gets your attention, doesn't it? That's it sure a little, does. There's 
something menacing about that name. In the name, it's this is what the people want. Right. Uh, the people's will. Yeah, all of them. That's right. <laughs> I always think of uh, The Rock, you know, the people's <laughs> champion. <laughs> this is your elbow. <laughs> this right? is the people's elbow, right? <laughs> this is the people's will. But th- this organization wasn't wasn't very nice in the way they went about <laughs> things. And, and revolution very rarely is a nice endeavor anyway. But they, they very much were terrorist in the sense that they sought to violently destabilize the Russian Empire. And they thought that if they could assassinate Alexander II, the peasants might rise up and adopt a new government. They thought this might light a fire under Right. This is their chance if something were to happen. Right. Right. There were multiple assassination attempts on Alexander II's life. Some of these were related to the people's will. Some were not. But in April 1866, there was an attempt on the emperor's life in St. Petersburg by Dmitry Karakozov. That attempt was unsuccessful. One year later, during the 1867 World Fair, Polish immigrant Antony Berezowski attacked the carriage containing Alexander II, his two sons, and Napoleon III. The would-be assassin's self-modified double-barrel pistol misfired and struck a horse of an escorting cavalry man. So it didn't work out. Yeah, sort of a, um, a botched chance again, right? Right. Poor horse, though. Yeah. On the morning of April 20th, 1879, Alexander was confronted by a former student, 33-year-old Alexander Soloviev. The emperor saw a revolver in Soloviev's hand and ran away in a zigzag pattern, nonetheless. <laughs> I always heard that's how you, tell you uh, get away from alligators. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. It's either alligators or crocodiles. Yeah, like if one like literally gets after you. You just run zigzag? Zigzag and it can't keep up. But if you run it in a direct line, it's it's over. <laughs> So, so apparently run zigzag is, huh. I guess, a good advice for anything. Man, so, so if an alligator has a revolver on you, double, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. double effective. <laughs> Sullivan fired five times but missed. He was hanged on May 28th after being sentenced to death. That same year, in December 1879, the People's Will terrorists organized an explosion on a railway from Moscow, hoping to hit Alexander's train, but they missed. The next year, on the evening of February 5th, 1880, Stefan Kalturin set off a time charge under the dining room of Alexander's Winter Palace, killing 11 people and wounding 30 others. The New York Times reported, quote, The dynamite used was enclosed in an iron box and exploded by a system of clockwork. So just kind of a timing mechanism mm. on a bomb underneath the dining room. And it right. went off, but it but it missed him. It, but, but it he, killed some folks. But he wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't there. Dinner had been delayed by the late arrival of Alexander's nephew. Oh, my uh, gosh. <laughs> so the royal family was not in the dining room at the time of the explosion. Lucky them. Man, I mean, how many uh, lives does this guy have? He's got a few. <laughs> yeah. But it was all going to wrap up on March 13th, 1881. Alexander fell victim to an assassination plot in St. Petersburg. While traveling in his carriage to a military location, Alexander was confronted by a member of the People's Will named Nikolai Ryzakov, who was carrying a small white package wrapped in a handkerchief. The explosion killed one person and wounded several others. However, since the emperor was traveling in a bulletproof carriage, he was shaken but unharmed. Wow. So he has a few lives. Man, missed him again. Missed him again. However, there was a second attacker there that day uh, by the name of Naradnaya Volya standing by a fence. He raised both arms and threw something at the emperor's feet. He was alleged to have shouted, quote, 
it is too early to thank God. Someone at the scene later wrote the following, and this is an explicit description of exactly what happened with the explosion. Quote, I was deafened by the new explosion, burned, wounded, and thrown to the ground. Suddenly, amid the smoke and snowy fog, I heard His Majesty's weak voice cry, Help! Gathering what strength I had, I jumped up and rushed to the emperor. His majesty was half lying, half sitting, leaning on his right arm. Thinking he was merely wounded heavily, I tried to lift him, but the czar's legs were shattered and the blood poured out of them. Twenty people with wounds of varying degrees lay on the sidewalk and on the street. Some managed to stand, others to crawl, still others tried to get out from beneath bodies that had fallen on them. Through the snow, debris, and blood, you could see fragments of clothing, epaulets, sabers, and bloody chunks of human flesh. End quote. Man, that's a graphic yeah, sounds like something of what uh, happened. Like a Quentin Tarantino scene or something right there. <laughs> yeah. That's horrible. I watched the Netflix documentary recently on the Russian oh, yeah. Revolution. I think you did yeah. too. And they described this event as Russia's equivalent of something like 9-11. Wow. It was just, to them, that deeply just affecting a of massive their culture. massive gut punch, right? To, yeah. yeah it, it took them out. It was later discovered that there was actually even a third bomber in the crowd who stood ready with a briefcase containing a bomb should the first two attempts fail. So they had three plans ready to go. Gosh. Alexander was carried to his study where he was bleeding to death with his legs torn away, his stomach ripped open, and his face mutilated. The dying emperor was given communion and last rites and passed away shortly thereafter. So after all of these attempts, trying to bomb the railway, trying to bomb his dinner table, he finally was just in a carriage and just by chance even, because the first attempt failed, if he had continued along that road and made his way on to where he was going and hadn't faltered there for a little while, maybe that second attack wouldn't have wouldn't have had any effect right. you know and that could have dramatically changed the the course of history you know, what's what's so scary about that is that that's just sort of proof that if if enough people have it out for you that it's it's hard to stay away from that forever right i mean especially if you're a leader and you have to be out in the streets and you know among the public I mean, you cannot ignore that uh, all the time yeah you, you have to be aware of it and, right. and constantly guarded and i think there there were a couple calvaries there along with the emperor who were guarding him but still yeah. still you know the first bomb went off and he got out to see what happened because a few people had died a few people people had been wounded and it just so happened there was another bomber ready and waiting just in case yeah yeah so the course of history could have changed here for a couple of reasons number one if alexander ii had have gone on to live then you know things would have been dramatically different as far as the revolution goes uh but here's an interesting point the death of alexander ii actually caused a setback for the reform movement Uh, one of his last acts was the approval of a set of constitutional reforms these reforms would have led to the forming of a constitution in russia which would have likely provided greater rights to the peasants However, Alexander II was killed before releasing the plans to the Russian people, and his successor, Alexander III, chose to abandon the reforms and went on to pursue a policy of greater autocratic power. So Man, it, it so, backfired. So total different direction, right? I mean, yeah. we're going this way, and then all of a sudden, because of this assassination, now all that's derailed, and now we're going back the opposite way. Yeah. Yeah. 
So if they had just waited two weeks or if this attempt had failed and two weeks had went by, Alexander's plan was to release these documents that basically gave a little bit more freedom to the peasants, empowered them a bit more, built up their government a bit more, and in doing so may have provided them some of the liberation that they, that were, they were actually they after. They were fighting for, right. Yeah, but his death caused the exact opposite effect. It's crazy the timing hmm. on that. That's interesting. How things could have been different. Because I know here in a little while we're going to talk about communism and Lenin and some right. of that. That may have never occurred if Alexander II had to live for just a couple more weeks and some of these plans he had for expanding liberties in Russia right. had have been enacted. Yeah, but, I mean, people's whole you know personalities and sort of their opinions on their livelihoods may have been drastically different. Could have been completely in, different. Two weeks later, a month later, had they known right, you know, this was going to happen. But Alexander III put a stop to all of that. That. And he he was a little bit fearful after all of this happened. He he imagined <laughs> I can imagine so they were going to be out to get him too, and they were. So those fears were well placed. And as part of that, he rolled back a lot of those liberations that Alexander II had put in place. But Alexander III became Tsar of Russia on May twenty seventh, eighteen eighty three, and he ruled until his death in eighteen ninety four. He opposed any reform that limited his own autocratic rule. In fact, he reversed some of the liberal reforms of his father, as we said. Mm. His political ideal was a nation composed of a single nationality, language, and religion, all under one form of administration. In May of 1887, the people's will began planning the murder of Alexander III. <laughs> that didn't take long, did it? No, it was a, kind of a quick turnaround. The Okhrana, which was the secret police force of Russia, uncovered the plot and five of the conspirators, and one of the conspirators was Alexander Ulyanov, the older brother of Vladimir Lenin, which I think we're going to hear about right. here in just a little bit. They were captured and hanged in May of 1887. In 1894, Alexander III became ill with terminal kidney disease. He died in the arms of his wife and in the presence of his physician on November 1st, 1894, at the age of 49. Alexander III was succeeded by his eldest son, Nicholas, who took the throne as Tsar Nicholas II. So, Jason, what can you tell us about the reign of Tsar Nicholas II? Well, unfortunately, if your last name is Romanov, people are after you. Doesn't work out, does <laughs> I think it? that's kind of the common theme uh, throughout uh, Russian history. Nicholas Romanov II became the last Tsar of the Russian Empire on November 1st, 1894. And Nicholas's time period as leader was a, very, uh, a really difficult time for Russia. He had to endure many military defeats, deal with many political reforms, World War One. Uh, of course, then it was called the Great War, right? Uh, and eventually uh, a revolution in his own country. During the 1890s, Russia began to industrialize, which would lead to a large urban middle working class. While industry did increase, many workers felt mistreated while at their jobs due to workplace conditions. Also, there was food shortages at times in different parts of the country, which made people scared and also really polarized them and politicized them. Eventually, more and more Russian citizens became frustrated with Russian society, and this led to an event referred to as Bloody Sunday, uh, or also called Red Sunday, on January 22, 1905. Several thousand citizens, uh, including men, women, and children, marched toward the Tsar's Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. Now, one important thing to, to, to think about here is that this was not necessarily like a military takeover, right? Right. This was a semi-peaceful protest. They were just assembling. They were just assembling 
And uh, and some of them even had posters and pictures of the czar, like in support, like showing we're coming here. We still support you, but we need you to listen to us. Right. Uh, however, Czar Nicholas uh, heard rumors of the protest and he left St. Petersburg. As the crowd grew closer, tensions grew. Soon a riot broke out on one of the streets nearby the palace. Things escalated quickly, and minutes later, 96 Russian citizens were killed and over 300 more were wounded. Wow. I think some of the soldiers just started firing on them. Yeah, I think they just sort of got spooked, and then one gunshot, then a scream, and another gunshot, and it just, just all, all falls apart. Yeah. While Nicholas did not order his soldiers to fire on the crowd, uh, this massacre had happened on his watch. I mean, when he is the leader. Nicholas was quoted as saying the situation was, quote, painful and sad. Uh, but from that moment on, many Russians adopted the motto, quote, we no longer have a czar. Oh, wow. And so that mentality was sort of you know born that day and then just kind of perpetuated as, as time went on. And again, this was in 1905. Can't imagine that was that motto was very well received I, by I, the Romanov family. I wouldn't think so. Uh, Bloody Sunday cast a shadow on Nicholas from which he would really never recover. Nicholas permitted a new chamber of the government called the Duma to allow for a more representative government. Uh, but in reality, the Duma wasn't very powerful. I think in a lot of ways, this was his way to try to... Just appease them a bit. Kind of, kind of throw them a bone. but Didn't really empower them not, not really, no. And around this same time period, uh, in 1904-1905, Russia was at war with Japan as the two empires both had ambitions for uh, Manchuria and Korea. Russia would ultimately uh, lose the war at the hands of the Japanese Navy, only bringing further and further criticism of Nicholas's leadership. Nicholas would continue to lead Russia uh, through this harsh criticism for several more years. But in 1914, things would drastically change. On July 28, 1914, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire declared war on Russia's ally, Serbia. Now, this is what we mean when we're talking about entangling alliances. You know, so we have a, a, a person that picks on my friend, therefore I must take up for my friend, and then here we go. Right. So basically, Russia and Serbia were uh, were allies, and there was a Serb that uh, had murdered the uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And because of that, obviously that empire declares war on Serbia. Mm -hmm. So then you have a, a little bit back and forth. So Russia did not really want to get involved with it, but they kind of felt like they didn't really also have a choice. So then the next thing you know, now Germany is involved in it because they're taking it for Austria-Hungary. Right. So now you have several countries that are, that are involved in this, and several of them really, really did not want to... Uh, go all the way. Actually, there's some correspondence leading up to just several days uh, before Russia declared war. And in fact, some of these were actually uh, blood related. Some of these leaders were blood related. They were cousins. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And they were trying to say, hey, you know, why don't you back off? And then it's like, well, well you know, eh, why don't you back off? And really neither did. So a big complex global game of chicken. Pretty much, Basically. yeah. It's like, who's going to blink first type thing. On July 30th, Russia ordered full mobilization of its army. Russia declared war on August the 1st. Despite an extremely large army with over 4 million troops, the army was very unprepared both in resources and in training. Uh, more military defeats began to further damage the Romanov name along with the friendship 
of a strange man known as Grigory Rasputin. So have oh, you ever right. heard of this this cat? Old Rasputin. Sure have. Yeah. I think he was even in one of the Disney movies, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Anastasia. Anastasia. Yeah. Yep, that's it. So Rasputin was born to a peasant family and became a holy man of sorts and claimed that he was a prophet. He had some sort of uh, mystical powers. He befriended and impressed the Romanov family when in 1906 he treated Alexei, Nic- uh, Nicholas's son, who suffered from hemophilia. Uh, from that point on, Rasputin was a permanent fixture in the Romanov home. They just kind of accepted him in, and that started to sort of weird people out, like over time, because he was there for quite some time. Right. And and people, you know, all of a sudden they were like, well, you know, who, who's this guy in the background? Well, there he is again. Well, then here he is again. And all, all of a sudden, a lot of questions began to be, to be asked about this guy. As time went on, more and more Russians, you know, grew to distrust uh, Rasputin as they thought he was a bad influence on the family. And on December 30th, 1916, a group of noblemen murdered Rasputin while the Tsar was away from the city. The Tsar would return home, but the proverbial wheels had fallen off. And then just a few weeks later, on February 23rd, 1917, thousands protested in the streets at St. Petersburg, uh, mainly due to food rationing. On February 27th, many of the Russian soldiers joined the revolutionaries. So mm. that that's kind of that's when kind it, of the turning point. Yeah. So when all the some of the soldiers who are pointing the guns this way, all of a sudden they do an about face. Now they're pointing them, you know, at the palace. That's different. Yeah. Three days later, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the throne, and he and his family were placed on house arrest. So they were there in the streets outside the palace for about eight days kind of saying the, you know, uh, heck no, we won't go <laughs> uh, type of thing. And then and then some of the soldiers actually joined their ranks. And so that that all that whole mess went on for like eight days yeah. before he finally said, okay, I'm done. And you have to imagine some of those soldiers were peasants before themselves. I'm sure they were. They were forced into yeah. to joining the effort, uh, especially in World War One. I, I think. The family basically forced a lot of the peasants into the military uh, to fight in the, the Russian army, and they went in, like you said, without a lot of provisions, in some cases, no shoes, no food, and even limited weapon supplies. So you can just imagine yeah. that that was a sticking point yeah. for them. I mean, you know, they're marching across the field that they're having trouble even walking in. They didn't even want to be there. They didn't really have a sense of of pride, like you know, this this is what I want to do. Yeah. You know, they're being made no, to no do ownership. This. No owner at all. No. No, they they didn't really have a stake in it. Yeah. So it's no surprise whenever the guns started getting pointed back and forth, they realized, hey, this person across from me is is my friend. That's my neighbor. This is someone I know. Right. So I think that's when the yeah. guns pointed toward the palace and and that's a that is a true revolution yeah i mean when you see when it, it's a it's a mental and philosophical change like that and then you know and all of a sudden it's just you know this is the way we have to do things and then you know quite literally overnight it's like you know what no no more this is how we're going to do things right this brings us to one of the most controversial political leaders in history uh, a man by the name of vladimir Ilyich ulyanov aka vladimir lenin or vi lenin or just Lenin. <laughs> you can't talk a Russian Revolution without talking about Lenin. Oh yeah, he's he's a player. He he is you know, he is the player. Lenin was just a political activist uh, pretty much his entire life, but was continually motivated to bring about change uh, once his brother Alexander Ulyanov was sentenced 
to death in 1887 for the assassination attempt of Alexander III. Right. Lenin hated the Romanov family from that day forward. Uh, you know, and Lenin really was just kind of this radical guy on the countryside. I mean, obviously he was smart, he was motivated, but he was just constantly stirring up trouble. I mean, kind of like everywhere he went. You know, during his life, Lenin was expelled from a university. He lost jobs, was arrested multiple times, was exiled several times mm-hmm. for sedition. And, you know, Lenin was talking about uh, his ideas and political philosophy to basically anyone who would uh, would hear him. And obviously his ideas were tied back directly to the teachings of Karl Marx. Right. Uh, Marx was a German philosopher, a political theorist, and economist, and is best known for the historic uh, 1848 writing, The Communist Manifesto. So that document, you know, had been written several decades, you know, before the, the Russian Revolution. And basically, in the Communist Manifesto, it, the, the entire uh, writing focuses on this idea of class warfare, that you have uh, what Marx referred to as the, uh, the proletariat, which right. is sort of the working class, yeah. right? And then you have the bourgeoisie, who is sort of the, 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 the wealthy landowners, the company o- uh, owners, those types of things. And so basically, Marx just said that communism is the only way to achieve really a fair life because anytime that capitalism is involved in his opinion it would never be equal it would never be fair it would never be right Mm -hmm. and so basically his idea was at some point there would be this massive class warfare that would just be sudden kind of like what's happening here uh, in 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 russia what we're seeing but ironically marx actually made the comment that russia would be the last place that would happen and and it ended up kind of being the first you know so i think that's that's kind of interesting it is uh, but, you know, Lenin has has a really interesting story. Again, we talked about his brother. That really motivated him uh, early on. He was there for uh, Bloody Sunday in 1905, and he thought that was a wasted opportunity because he thought, okay, this is it. There's thousands of people. They're in the streets. They're here gathered. We, this here is what are. revolution looks like. Right. And then, and then that horrible accident, and then really nothing else occurs for like the next twelve years. So Lenin actually thought that they had missed their opportunity that 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 would never happen again. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, uh, it did. Uh, in in February nineteen seventeen, when the revolution really started, Lenin was actually in Finland. He he had been exiled on one of his numerous times he'd been exiled, and he was in Finland. And he came back on a train, obviously, and he comes back in. He's like, hey, 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 listen to me. You know, remember me? This is what this is. You know, I'm I'm Lenin, and remember, I was the guy talking about communism. This is how we should do it. <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, he got, I remember yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he has to leave again. He comes under extreme political pressure, uh, some threats. So he leaves again, and he's gone for a while. And then uh, in October of 1917, he comes back again several months later. But this time, it's like a military coup. I mean, he's not saying, like, listen to me. He's like, listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he comes back, and he just it's, it's a total takeover. And, of course, the group of people, the political party he's leading, uh, are called the, uh, the Bolsheviks. And whenever he takes control of the government and he throws the provisional government that had been set up after the czar had abdicated, after he had overthrown the provisional government, communism was born. And so there were two revolutions, really one in February of 17 and then one in October of 17. And then shortly after that, really a civil war uh, that e- erupted. You know, you had the Red Army, which was led by Lenin and, and uh, Leon Trotsky. Right. And of course, Joseph Stalin was also in, in a sort of an up and coming figure at that time. And then they were going against the, the White Army. The Red Army was 
total communism. The white army was sort of a political mix. Some people actually wanted the czar back, you know, have like a uh, uh, an oligarchy, you know, yeah. set up. Some uh, wanted uh, some milder form of communism, like some kind of socialism, some level of that. Mm-hmm. Some wanted a full blown democracy. So it was basically sort of a splintered group of of people. It's kind of a volatile society to be in at that time. Right, that it could go on a lot of different directions yeah. because the country was sort of open to that politically. There, there was a yeah. point in time yeah. where it could have went in a lot of different ways. Yeah, there, there was a vacuum. And so everybody wanted to rush for power. But really, the Red Army, they were more organized and they were together. They all believed the same thing. The White Army, not necessarily so. Right. Some wanted it this way, some wanted it that way. So obviously, the, the Red Army wins. Uh, Lenin takes control over Russia and ultimately you know, to be re- uh, renamed the Soviet Union. And I think the, the Bolsheviks then, did they, they put the czar and the family to death that were in under yeah. house arrest. At yeah, the time. they they did. So when when Nicholas uh, abdicated the throne, you know, I mentioned earlier, he and his family they were uh, put on house arrest, and they were there for like eight or nine months or so. And then, but whenever things kind of settled down, and Lenin was clearly in charge and he was the leader, he went and had them murdered. I mean, he he just had them shot to death, his children and all. And wow. so that's you can't imagine. You can't imagine you know that happening, but Lenin himself would not uh, live a whole lot longer than that. He actually became ill in the 1920s and and passed away in 1924. And of course, there was some political infighting and and all those types of things. And that's another whole little fascinating period there. But as we know, ultimately Joseph Stalin becomes the the leader of the Soviet Union. Yeah. So Shannon, that's kind of a an overview of the Russian Revolution going all the way back like to the 1880s, really and some of the the father and the grandfather of the, of the czar. And you could see some of the uh, political unrest and kind of how that traveled all the way through the time that Lenin takes over and Lenin passes away. But do you have anything else that you that you would like to add? I know you mentioned something that you has a really cool connection to this content. Yeah. So previously in a, in a, another life, I taught English language arts. All right. At, yeah. At you the middle school. You level. didn't teach Russian? <laughs> no, unfortunately <laughs> I did not. Uh, but I, but I did teach a book called Animal Farm and I've got it here on the desk in front of us. Jason, have you read Animal Farm? I have. I think I've read it. I know we were talking earlier, I think three times. I had to read it in middle school. Uh, thank you, Kathy Stevens, for making me read that. <laughs> uh, I had to read it sometime in high school. I think maybe my sophomore or junior year. And then I read it after college once. Yeah. And, and, and each time I read it, it's like I understood it in a different way. It takes on different meanings yeah. because it's an allegorical tale. Some have called it a political fable in a way, right. you know, that it has. But but there's things that you can learn from it. And certainly the characters are representative of this idea of the ideologies within the Russian Revolution. So Animal Farm is a novella by George Orwell. I just took a look at the page count here, and it's only about 130 pages or so. It's one of those reads that you can get through in an afternoon if you really wanted to. It's a quick read. It almost reads like a children's tale yeah. when you're going through it because it's uh, it's told from the point of view of various animals who live on a farm. In fact, it tells the story of this group of animals who rebel against their human farmer, hoping to create a society where the animals can be equal, free, and happy. And if you're starting to think about how this compares to the Russian Revolution, you're exactly right. Kind of connecting the dots, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's all connected. The book was published in England on August 17th, 1945. And in a lot of ways, it was a criticism on Joseph Stalin. Ultimately, within the book, the, the rebellion that the animals have is betrayed. 
So similar to the Russian Revolution, you have this big turnaround where the peasants take over, or in the novella where the animals take over the farm, right? They they overcome the farmer who was oppressing them, I think symbolic of the royalty ruling class, the czar, right. Nicholas II. But the, the rebellions ultimately betrayed and the farm ends in a state as bad as it was before under the dictatorship of a pig named Napoleon. And Napoleon is a name that's allegorical for Joseph Stalin. So Napoleon, the pig who assumes totalitarian power in animal farm, has the animals of the farm construct a windmill. And you talked about how uh, Russia tried to industrialize a little bit and move from being more of a, a rural type of place into more of an industrial type of place. This is the symbol within the book. All the animals rally up under Napoleon and they try to build this windmill and it's supposed to increase productivity on the farm, but ultimately it gets torn down and I think they have to rebuild it a couple of times and it's it's twice as hard every time and it takes <laughs> twice the labor and twice the resources. And this is sort of symbolic of Stalin's attempts to modernize Russia and sort of the general incompetence uh, of, of being able to do that because as the windmill falls, so did Stalin's march to try to industrialize uh, the country. Now, the thing that I find most compelling about the book is that there are seven commandments of something called animalism. And it's no great stretch of the imagination that animalism is a metaphor for communism. Right. And the seven commandments are as follows, and you can start to see the parallels. The first commandment is, whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. You have to remember, these are animals. <laughs> Let's just get that out of the way. Right? Right. So they're saying humans are the enemies. Right. Right? So, so they sort of start defining sides. Uh, whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. Or in the book, they call them comrades. Right? <laughs> okay, right. Uh, no animal shall wear clothes because that was supposed to be a symbol of humans, right? Why right. would animals ha- have any need for clothes? No animal shall sleep in a bed. Again, symbol for, for humans. No animal shall drink alcohol. No animal shall kill any other animal. And all animals are equal. On the surface, that's that sounds kind of idealized. Right. It sounds pretty good. Yeah. You know, kind of a utopia. No one's killing anyone else. No one's doing the former things that we didn't like in the first place that read, led to revolution. And all animals are equal. But the problem with that is it starts out well and fine, as I assume probably the the tenets of communism and, and Marxism and you know what he originally proposed probably sounded okay on right. paper. Something different, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, everyone's equal. Sure. But anytime you put humans into the mix, that's kind of when things start to go off the rails. And these rules in the book started getting revised. So the pigs started sleeping in the beds and they revised the rule uh, that said no animal shall sleep in a bed. They added the word uh, or the words with sheets. <laughs> so they removed all the sheets from the beds and they slept in the beds. Right. right? It's all legal the, now. It's fine now. You know, it's, it's just a small tweak. Uh, the next one, no animal shall drink alcohol to excess. So they just added <laughs> those two words there. You know, you just can't get drunk. <laughs> you just can't get drunk. No animal shall kill any other animal. And this is when it really became serious because there were at least a couple instances in the book where the ruling class, the pigs, very clearly led to the death or directly to the murder of other animals on the farm. And the commoners, you know, just the regular animals said, well, I, I thought we couldn't kill any any animals. And the rule was changed to no animal shall kill any other animal without cause. Mm. So you can you can slowly see how right. things are, are sort of changing here. And this is the last one. And this is the one that is uh, presented 
at the very end of the book, there's a period during which the pigs go off by themselves for a while and they start practicing walking upon two legs. I don't know if you remember this. From <laughs> oh, yeah, the book. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I had forgotten about it, but yeah, I remember that now. Yeah. So one day they come out on the farm after a period of absence and the pigs are walking on two legs and they've went and they've retrieved the whips that the farmer used to use and they're carrying them in their trotters and they're basically returning to the old ways of how the farmer used to run the farm and they've changed the final rule of all animals are equal and they've added the the next line but some are more equal than others yeah that's that just really that's the one i specifically remember whenever you talked about the the uh the the commandments yeah that's the one i always come back to because that's the one that you remember you know all animals are equal but some are more equal than others so that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever (laughs) you know but it's kind of weird that they would try to pass that off as well yeah certainly that makes sense right sure and so but i mean honestly that happens in the real world yeah. I mean, you know, it's, you know, there are things like we, we read and we see and we're like, okay, that makes sense. And then they, you know, politicians sometimes will put a whole different perspective on it. And you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense now. Right. You know, because, and you begin to question things. So Animal Farm is an absolute, just terrific n- a novel. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. And the, the thing I remember most at the very end, I think in the final paragraphs, the lower class animals, symbolic of the peasants in Russia, are staring through the window and they're watching the pigs at the table play a game of cards and they say they look from one face to the next trying to find some semblance that these are still animals that they're still pigs remember these are just just recently the pigs who start walking on two legs right (laughs) right and they look from one face to the next to the next and there just happen to be a couple humans sitting there with them some of their trading partners from neighboring farms playing cards and they're all sitting there drinking and they're gambling and as the animals looked at them they realized that they can no longer tell a difference between the pigs yeah. and the humans is it that sort of just so somber it is and just kind of like uh, i don't know it just sort of does something to you it's it's not it's it's sad but it's almost just somber and so depressing you know? right because in in that moment you realize that they are just animals outside the window and what could they really do I mean, if you think right. about animals in the real world, you know, and take this just at face value, right. what could an animal yeah, I mean, do? How could we possibly approach these They're in their ivory tower. They're right. in there. They, they are more knowledgeable. They have all the power. They have all the money, the wealth, the right. resources. They have the allies, the friends at the table with them. Who are we? Just just peasants staring through the window. Right. It's kind of depressing. It's, it is depressing, but it's a, it's a very powerful book. It is. Uh, it's 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 probably at least at least in my top ten that I've ever read. Yeah. I mean, I I love it. So th- this cl- uh, clearly paints the picture of the Russian Revolution and leads us up to uh, very interesting topics concerning humanity in general and the the ruling class. Uh, politics and peasants and all of that. So, Jason, is there any takeaways or anything that you would add as we get ready to wind this one down? No, not really. Uh, Just, uh, I guess I might ask the listeners uh, if you have any maybe other historical topics uh, that you would like for us to uh, research and uh, conduct a podcast on, just please let us know. Yeah, this was a fun one. I really enjoyed doing the research for this one. And we would encourage our followers each week uh, to check us out on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the handle at SlapdashPod. And we will catch you in the next episode. Take care, everybody.